Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am Andrew Gutman, and along with my co-host, Beth Feely, we are, as we always say, two accidental activists, two parents who spoke up about what was going on in our kids' schools. And now we talk to other people that are fighting the education battles along with us. Uh, We are very pleased to welcome back to Take Back Our Schools, our favorite uh, former teacher dissident, Paul Rossi. Uh, Paul is a mathematics teacher, writer, and whistleblower who disclosed the impact of critical race theory at his former school, Grace Church School in Manhattan, where he taught from 2012 to 2021. He is currently a senior education analyst, writer for LegalInsurrection.com, and an advisor to the Education Liberty Alliance. He is also a friend of both myself and Beth. So, Paul, thank you for coming back to Take Back Our Schools. Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you both again. How are you, Beth? Great. You forgot Paul's also a little bit of a hero. So I would add that. Paul is a hero. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you know, you so, too. Um, so you're, you're actually the first guest you've ever had. Uh, first repeat guest you've ever had, which is really, really an honor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, let's start with this. You were for a while, I think more than a month, sort of kicked off of Twitter and now you're back. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about what seven weeks, kicked off? Yeah. seven, seven yeah. weeks, so it was seven a weeks, a but who's counting days, four hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Twitter's I been can... doing a lot of that lately, but um, I think your story is a little bit unique. If you want to talk about maybe what got you kicked off and, and, uh, and how you got back on. Sure. Yeah. I, um, um, many, many of the folks you're talking about recently in this recent purge around, um, uh, had to deal with, what supposedly is hateful speech, but my, my that was not my problem. So groomer they're going after, right? Right. The, the, the groomer, don't say groomer right. rule. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't that wasn't my issue. It was um, because I had uh, received video of a uh, of a of a teacher training by the Pollyanna uh, Pollyanna Inc., which is a curriculum company that deals with some of the their clients are some of the highest end elite private schools in New York and LA and Chicago. So they had they have had out for several years a racial literacy curriculum for K through eight, um, which is frightening and uh, disturbing enough because it's really uh, pushing this identitarian ideas around race for kindergartners. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done some writing around that, but this is the new issued curriculum for nine through 12. So I was curious about what the content of that is. It's freely available. Anyone can go and register and get a get a copy of it. Um, and uh, I was able to obtain a full copy of it, as well as um, the video of the teacher training, which is about two hours. And I shared um, several the video clips. Was, sorry, the video was publicly available as well. You didn't have the video. Time. No, you, you pay for the video. Pay for the video. Get, yeah. And so uh, you yeah, got the video. They also made it available to all of the people who paid for it after the event. So I made uh, several clips of this uh, short clips um, and put them on YouTube for a uh, article that I wrote with legal legal insurrection, who I'm writing for currently. And uh, really just going through and it, talking about how egregious the the political, you know, obvious political bias of these lessons are. Um, everything from, you know, pushing an art class saying, you know, saying that you have to make activist art and all of the all of the heroes that they talk about are, act, you know, left wing activists 
to a math class, which basically, which says explicitly, you know, we're going to plan a protest in favor, in support of DACA. And, you know, here's how we're going to do it. You're going to have to budget your materials and, and so on. And, um, so, so this is just to be clear, this, this racial literacy curriculum is not take one class on, you know, racial literacy. This no, is something that no. it, every teacher from, like you said, from art to math science, uh, is supposed to incorporate into their curriculum. Is that how that's they right? Do it? So if, okay. if a school, you know, and, and schools can sign on to greater or lesser degree. I mean, you don't have to use, they're very clear to say this is, this can be enrichment. You know, you could use all 65 lessons. There's 65 lessons across eight subjects. Um, but if, you know, if you have, if you're a student at a school that's fully signed onto this and, and has bought, bought the whole thing, then you could, you know, that's essentially, you know, two months of, of coursework. Right. Uh, so this is, this is, this can be, I think most schools will probably use it, not in the full, it's full implementation, they but usually embed it, I think into yeah. lessons, cause it's a lot harder to detect. That's for that's, sure. That's um, right. And also what it does is it sets a, it sets the tone for the other courses. And so if you're, if, if one teacher is teaching any of this, well, then it's taken as gospel and the other teachers have to align to it. So it has this sort of effect um on you know what is the correct way to teach these subjects do you have a sense for at at you know private schools that are adopting this if this is fully top down in other words this is the administration that's telling all teachers that they have to use this or is this something that a teacher can decide for themselves one teacher can decide to incorporate it a lot a little or not at all do you, do you have a sense for what's going on at private schools that's a good question i mean i i can only speak to my own you know at my own little window which was you know, one very progressive school in, in the New York area. But um, this what what happens is there'll usually be a faculty meeting and they'll announce that they they've done a deal with this company and then we're we are using this curriculum and we invite you as f to you know to find ways to incorporate this where appropriate, you know, to find ways. But then they may have another meeting where one of the teachers does a presentation on how to do it successfully. And then you know, so there is this there is this pressure within sure. the academic, the, the limited academic freedom of a private school because they are they're not as they're, they're not as coercive as public school in terms of what they're telling you what to teach. There is a lot of independence, but it's clearly something that they present as desirable. Mm. And if you challenge it, if you were to actually have any material in a course that maybe opened up and said, you know, what are some other ideas about this and what are some other facts and statistics we could bring to bear on some of these issues, you are quickly going to run into um, students that and other colleagues that are going to say, and administrators that are going to say, you know, we need to talk about this, you know, we've been hearing things or, so it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a real environmental ecosystemic push towards this, in this direction. And, and part of it is, is that the student activists, that is really what they're trying to create is, is change agents. Sometimes you hear that word, that phrase. So these types of curricula that these consultants are, are being paid to, to, to deliver and train teachers in is, you know, is part of that overarching moral imperative in these schools. So it really, if you're talking about a hierarchy of values, they're placing this at the apex of that, of that pyramid. 
And you hear a lot about student advocacy, student voice, student. So it takes many forms. It's not like they come right out and say, okay, we want to create the next generation of activists. Although I have seen that in some schools where they've actually said mm -hmm. that. So it is a value of the school and, um, and, you know, the kids can't, they have to stick to the script. They can't question. They certainly are not learning how to be critical thinkers. It always makes me laugh when you see critical thinking in the same sentence, when they're talking about programs like this, because it, they're not teaching them to be critical at all. If anything, that earns you probably a pass to the principal's office. Um, so it's really, it's really quite something. You were reprimanded, actually, for for calling into question these very types of programs back at when you were at grade school. Um, and then, so tell us about in in the Pollyanna training. What um, I guess, how did you get into it? And then, what actually got you kicked off? And then, are you back right. on? I get back to that. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I am back on. Uh, I I got into Pollyanna because Grace was one of the pilot customers for their uh, for their pilot K through eight, which mm -hmm. I would I didn't know directly because that was in the lower school men and middle school. And do they um, just teach pub private schools or are these or do they have public clients? Do you know? As yeah, well? they have they have some public clients. I, I okay. have to they've they've played some games with their website and kind of hid their client list and you have to go to the archive to see it, which you know is indicative of that they they might not want that why would you not want people to know about you so uh yeah i shared something i shared a clip on twitter uh as well as six clips about anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds in the legal insurrection article and they they filed dmca complaints against the youtube clips against the rumble backups i had backups on rumble smart and also uh but they they nailed both of those um I didn't lose my accounts there because I only had it was they basically did it in two groups. So it was two strikes. But on Twitter, this single clip that I had um, got me got me permanently suspended. Um, now, it was my second, quote unquote, violation because I had also shared back in January, Andrew, you know, we worked on that Wall Street Journal op ed yep. um, about the POCC, the People of Color Conference, which is hosted by the NIS. And I had clips that I had posted directly to Twitter on that, that were hosted by Twitter. That was my first, um, my first quote violation. unquote violation mm -hmm. that I, I think is also fair use. Um, and, but, but I just really, code, the DCMA is a copyright yeah. violation. They're claiming copyright that violation, no right. right. The digital millennium copyright act says, you know, that, that um, all platforms, private platforms have to provide a means for copyright holders to submit notifications if if they feel that their rights have been infringed. And they also need to provide a means for uh, people who are who have been accused of violating to to give a count serve a counter notice. And really the platforms are just supposed to be a conduit. So you know they they they'll take it down or or you know if they're notified, but then if they're counter notified, they pass it along and they give the person who the complainant 10 days to actually file legal action. So had Pollyanna complained against you or was it a It was the party? NY, it was the uh, New York, um, the, the NYSAIS, which is the New York State Association of Independent Schools, which is a you know, okay. affiliate arm of NAS. And they had hosted the training with Pollyanna. So they claimed that they uh, were the copyright holders. Okay. So, um, so they were the ones that filed the complaint. All right. So you yeah. spend some time off and spend in some time your off. 
kick, when you're kicked off yeah. Twitter, it actually hurts. I mean, because especially being a journalist, you know, it's how you get news. I'm, I'm assuming you could still look at news, but just you can look right. But you sharing can information, it's a it's a pretty important platform, especially for a writer. So, um, you know, there are there are consequences. So, so can you tell us how you got back on or what? Sure. Happened? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so I um, I had excellent legal advice. Uh, walking me through the counter notification, the justifications for my publishing the clip, which fell under fair use, which is, you know, is it a, is it a small portion of the, of the material? Is it something that you, uh, you're not trying to resell? You know, that wasn't what, that was what I was trying to do. And was it transformative? Like it, had I provided enough context around it, that it was editorial and I, and I, you know, clearly satisfied though. Now it's not a statute. The fair use is not a statute. It's a doctrine. So it's a legal precedent uh, and interpretation of copyright law, which, and, and nothing is, you know, enforceable is, in a court of law, or is this just among well, you know, people someone, that are agreement? This is something you agree to when you start your Twitter account that you will, that you will abide by these rules. Well, you know, you, you abide, but you're, you, in the section of Twitter, they say, you know, you must abide by copyright law, which is you cannot post anything which violates copyright. Uh, and they, they they give you a little lesson on what that means. Um, and then they talk about the fair use doctrine and they say, you know, well, you know, that's something which historically has been treated by the courts as an exception to uh, copyright infringement. And so, um, you know, I, I felt like it was very, you know, very clearly under that exception. Uh, and but I had to make my case. So, you know, they 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 will act first and then evaluate later. So that's kind of in a, in a way I can understand it because they have to protect themselves. Uh, but they have a form where to submit a counter notification. So I was suspended. I they directed me to this form. I submitted my materials within you know five five days for each of the um, each of the not only the clips that I was, the, the single clip that I was suspended for in May, but the previous clips in January. Um, and it, it returned this, this message that said, I'm sorry, you can't submit a counter notification because you're suspended. So the form- So they suspend it, you, let's be clear. That's they right. suspend <laughs> you, tell you this is how you, what you have to do right. to, to exactly. and, then, and then they don't allow you to That's right. the documentation because you're suspended. Exactly. Okay. So right. it's just cash okay. right. too. So right. you know, I'm like, what would I do? You know, you know, and these, well, just mail them in by hand. So I printed them all out. I mailed them in. You can also email copyright at twitter.com. So I did that. And I kept getting emails back saying, and you got please, a postcard back saying, <laughs> please submit through our form, please. And then, and then, you know, if you don't, if you're having trouble with the form, you could, you know, you could file an appeal. I tried to file through the appeal, which is a separate form. I put the notices, the counter notices in that. That also got rejected and I got redirected back to this form. So you just kept getting this runaround. Which and I think this could wear some people out, right? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think eventually some might give up. That's kind of the point. Um, if you know, um, but I I wonder if it is. I don't I don't know for sure. But eventually, and I looked on Brett, I looked at some of, you know, there I'm not the first person to go through this. I looked at a lot of reports from different people and they said, you know, just keep doing it, keep submitting it be persistent. And I did that. And eventually I got back an email that said that was different. And it said, you know, if you want to submit a counterclaim and the form isn't working, you must submit it by email in this format. So they had this very precise format. You had to put your name and address and you had to like put your justification with certain headings. So that was like, okay, finally, like I have some way, something different. This is interesting. So I submitted it that way. 
And then immediately uh, I received back saying, we have accepted your counter notification. Uh, the, the complainant has 10 days to notify us that they filed legal action against you. Uh, or we're going to, you know, and at the end of those 10 days, we're going to restore the content. So I waited 10 days and they restored the content in my account. Um, now, I also proceeded to delete all that content right after I got put back on. Why? Because I had also read that very often uh, when the organization finds out that the content has been restored, they will have somebody else file a complaint that will immediately get you suspended again. So uh -huh. because you're at risk in that, and, and as you said, if you're a journalist, you really uh, unfortunately are reliant on, on this private platform um, to get you know, your message out to let people know that you exist and that you're still around. And I was really, you know, I, I'm very grateful. This really taught me a lesson that you can't do anything alone. You really need people, good people to support you and to, and to keep your story alive in Twitter. I, I had, uh, I worked with a group called newtolerance.org that they did a campaign to help me, um, you know, keep me, keep my story out there. But, uh, it was a real, real learning experience. I learned a lot about, um, you know, the, the, the black box that is Twitter and, and how to, now I don't know much about, I, I can't be much help to other people that fall afoul of the speech guidelines, but, but I can probably help with copyright if anybody's listening and run into copyright trouble. How many hours do you think you spent fighting this? Oh, uh, well, there was a, you know, uh, wow. Ballpark. Oh, man, I don't know. Probably 30, 40 hours, you know, wow. something wow. over stretched over time and, and, uh, emotional and distress. I was going to uh, say yeah. stressful hours too. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just yeah. the 60 minutes. It's the quality of the 60 minutes. That's, that's so, true. Well, persistence pays off and that was good that you were restored and good lesson learned. And what again is the name of the organization and do they have a website? Just yes. It's called new, new tolerance, uh, org. Yeah. New tolerance campaign or new tolerance, new tolerance .org, But I think they might be called a new tolerance campaign. So, and YouTube, you YouTube, get suspended, same, but same. same thing with YouTube, okay. YouTube actually, um, came back in a similar way. Okay. Uh, YouTube had a different way of sort of making it difficult. Uh, they actually did not forward my counter notice to the complaining party as well as Twitter, but they said, you know, we can't tell if your counter notice is actually legit or not. So uh, resubmit. And that's really not what they're supposed to do. They're, they're really just supposed to be a conduit. They're not supposed to legally evaluate the substance of my counter notice. Uh, but you could be stuck in YouTube purgatory for a long time if you don't know if there's really a, a counter notice. And then, I mean, how could you get to the bottom of that if you're not sure that there's actually an organization there? Well, people, it's very, it's really Kafka-esque because people would say, well, maybe you know somebody, um, you know, can we, if you know somebody, you can pull some strings. Uh but, you know, you're essentially in this waiting room, like in the trial, and, you, you know, you hear things from people in the waiting room saying like, oh, I did this last month and I got a response three weeks later. And someone else says, well, I've been here for five years, you know, and I never got my account restored. And, you know, every once in a while, someone comes through the door of the office and says, you know, we'll see you now. Um, but you know, you, you, there are no guarantees. It's a private platform. This is the nature of the game. They can do what they want. There, there are really, there's really no recourse. I can't sue Twitter. Um so, you know, this is where this is where we are. It was it was eye opening and it made me more sympathetic. I had been kind of a libertarian on this issue, but it made me sort of more sympathetic to people that say, uh, you know, we need a public 
public solution to this problem because it really is the public square de facto, like if not sure. Section 230 and exactly kind of all that. Into that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know. There are no easy answers and I, I don't even have a, a stance on it uh, even after all this. So, yeah, I mean, these are complicated issues, but, yeah. but that the power being the public square and the censorship that they seem to take now. And then, you know, a lot of people think that the, that the federal government is encouraging censorship on a lot of issues, COVID related stuff specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on the groomer, on the groomer stuff, yeah. there's definitely collusion. Um, you know, there, there's some kind you know, you have something appears in Reddit, Reddit takes down groomer. Then you've got the yeah. AP style guidelines are like updating their guidelines all simultaneously. And then Twitter does this. And so the, the chilling effect is, is serious and it's, it's coordinated. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so you wrote a, an interesting provocative article that that was then posted on on Twitter, but it was for the post millennial. This came out about two weeks ago, I think, maybe ten days. Called yeah. uh, entitled "Students Pressure to Celebrate Pansexual Drag Queen at School Chapel as Teacher Resigns Over Misuse of Pronouns," uh, and that is something that happened at your former school, Grace Church. You want right. to talk about? There's a lot sure. going on there. Not, yeah, not, I mean that's not quite a lot a of it good, but okay, let's 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 hear what's <laughs> Someone, going on at Grace Church. I think Adam Coleman said like that's like the most disturbing headline you can possibly read. Um, yeah, you know, in this in this culture war. Um, yeah, I had reached out. To, I had stayed in touch with, um, you know, some people at Grace in the community, um, but you know, people new some new people reached out to me too, and so I, essentially I heard about this and I started to do some digging. I reached out to different people, got connected to some other people, and tried to put uh, started to put a picture to what actually happened at this chapel. Uh, where they invited a drag queen to to come down the aisle and give a give a speech at sort of at the place of the chapel where the reverend would usually give a sermon. They invite, you know, this is something that Grace does every two weeks. The students go to chapel and and many of them are politically themed. There's a um, Black History Month chapel. Just out of curiosity, yeah. yeah. Were they always political? You know, you're you're what about eleven years at Grace? Were they always politically themed? Not as and much. Did they at first. ever talk about God and the Bible during chapel? Yes, or? yes. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting mix because there is this very perfunctory, uh, the the gospel. They'll do gospel readings, um, but the but the sermons and the speakers and all the other stuff around it, and they'll sing Amazing Grace. So they some of the hymns, um, Raising Grace is sort of like the grace anthem. Um, but all of the content around this, this older traditional superstructure is, is extremely politicized around the usual, uh, identity politics themes. So you have pride chapel, you have black history month chapel, um, you'll have something on a disability. They'll do, they'll do faculty talks as well. So members, so I never did a faculty talk, but the faculty talks are actually some of the most had been some of the most shocking because I had, you know, they are really, some of them are really like fist in the air. Um, you know, I'm, I fought my way here and we're going to change society type of, type of speeches. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's something where it really is a kind of a, a mass. It's, a, it's one of the only places where you kind of have a mass gathering. We do community meetings too, which are also politicized often, but this is sort of a mass, mass gathering that has the imprimatur of 
an actual religious worship service infused with the politics. So the, the people have said that wokeness is a religion. What it really is, is this, it's this way of sort of a, an attachment protein to existing religious traditions. And that re, you know, re-encodes the DNA in this politicized way, but it's piggybacking off of the, the, the older traditional value system. Just to be clear, do the families that are sending their kids to Grace understand how politicized that the school is? I mean, do they know what they are signing up for? Or would these money, meetings be a surprise? Okay. I think many do. Um, so many of them are just rah-rah. Now, some of it is because it's a self-selecting feedback loop, right? So Grace gets a reputation as a progressive school. It attracts more progressive parents that want that for their children. So there is a there becomes a kind of a community that knows what to expect. Now, there are other there are other parents and students that are not grace aligned at this point that it would come as a shock. Yeah. And I think it has. I think it did for many students and, and many parents as well. And that's who you spoke with. So when when Ms. Uh, Britta Filter visited Grace Grace Church Chapel session. So tell us tell us what happened yeah. and some of the reaction and really some of the shocking um, you know, more elements like kids being shamed for not taking a right. sticker. I mean, really. Right. It's stuff. like a bad, it's like a Seinfeld episode. Uh, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not a prude. I'm not against drag culture. I mean, I, I actually think that there's some value to the art form uh, and I've seen it. I've seen elements of drag, which is, which is a localized, uh, you know, I, I see it as like a kind of a cultish art form, but it, it's, it's managed to enter the mainstream in different ways and some, some ways constructively, but it's not, it, it doesn't belong in church. It doesn't belong in kids. It's, it's, you know, certainly is not something because it's, uh, you know, these are people that, that are involved, deeply involved in the demimonde of uh, a very often sordid nightlife. And they're held up as these role models, um, Many, you know, many of them are drug addicts have been wrestled with, with alcoholism. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to sort of talk about that, but it's another thing to cheer and holler and, and yell in full throated political support for, for someone who is not, you know, what does a child do when they, when they get excited about them? They look them up. They, they want to, they want to see if what else they're doing. And on this person's Instagram and TikTok are, are, are celebratory posts about some of the most sordid aspects of, of risky sexual practices. And, uh, uh, and um, you know, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't think it belongs in church. I think a lot of people agree with that. Um, and what happened at the event was the, it was the pride chapel. So they hold the pride chapel in, in April because every, you know, the seniors have graduated by June. So they, they accelerate the calendar so that they can host this. This was April this year. This was April April. of this year. Yeah. This past April, April 27th and um, spectrum, the LGBTQ plus uh, affinity group uh, of students with several faculty advisors, uh, you know, made this decision. Now I heard, I heard after the fact that there were members of that group that were not okay with this, that actually thought, you know what, this isn't appropriate, but they were outvoted and overruled by their peers and the, fa- and the faculty advisor. So there is an institutional pressure that's, that is this, that is, that is part of the thing that's driving this. Um, 
which often what will happen is they'll bring it in and then they'll use the assent and enthusiasm of the students to say, no, look, it's the students want this. We're just letting the students centered, you know, center what they want. Um, so best, you know, as I can reconstruct from these reports the, and from the video that was recently released by Libs of TikTok, uh, filter enters from the back. There's music pumping through the nave, the, the, the beautiful grace, you know, it's almost a cathedral. Um, the designer of Grace went on to to design St. Patrick's. So it has many of the same architectural motifs. Comes in from the back, dressed in orange go-go boots, electric orange, and a baby draw mini skirt. Um, this is a plus size drag queen. There are, you know, it runs it dances up to the front, sachets up there. Um, and the the music teacher of the school. Um, is exhorting the crowd, like, stand up, stand up for Brita, you know, stand up. Uh, and so kids, you can see from the video, kids are standing up, you know, some of them are kind of hesitant. Um, and, uh, you know, getting up to the front, waltzing around the altar, uh, bending over, flashing the ash cheeks at uh, the kids, um, and then giving a talk about drag history. Um, and then apparently there was another segment where, uh, Jesse Havea. Jesse Havea is the performer who performs the role of, of Brita Filter. And he's already, quote, out, I guess, out as himself. So he has this alter ego persona, but he's also a public figure in his own right. He, you know, does another dance where he's joined by students and, you know, that are dancing with him in the church. And, you know, there's these students that I talked to are like, I can't believe, I was saying to myself, I can't believe this is happening in church. Uh, what is going on? Like, there's just a kind With of a, children. Yeah. A dumbfounded kind of, huh? Um, and, you know, they've all been uh, pressured to take this rainbow sticker um, and wear it. And so everyone's looking around to see who's wearing the sticker. If you refuse a sticker, you know, that's. You're homophobic. You, know, you can be called that out later. Uh, if you, if you accept the stick, you know, when they're handing out the sticker, they're saying, take one or you're a homophobe, take one or you're a homophobe take one so there is explicit political pressure around signaling your allegiance to to this event um now it's it's a private school um people can do what they want but a lot of parents don't know this is going on and a lot of people don't know this is going on i think they should and that's yes. on, that, on that note i mean are you aware of any parent reaction to this either when it happened or subsequent now that that this has been you know in the news no, no. Okay. No, I haven't heard a thing. Wow. I haven't heard a thing from any parents, uh, of, of any particular parents. Now I'm kind of, you know, persona non grata there. So I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised that no one's reached out to me, but it is, uh, I, that's why I think, you know, there's kind of a, a I don't want to say like a cosmopolitan rah, rah, we are so progressive atmosphere that I, I think that most parents just, would be like, well, what's the big deal? Um, right. You know, they're just having fun. Well, this is something that I believe you quoted in your article, and it was from a post that uh, Jesse Havea said. And part of it says, I love taking things that are very gentle, things that you're really not supposed to touch and effing them up. That gives me great pause. Yeah, right. That 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 is uh, that, that somebody would invite this person into the school to do what you described around children 
um, and thinking that that is a in any way uh, mind opening appropriate anything not to mention creating critical thinkers. I mean, if that appears anywhere in Grace's mission, I just have to laugh because what sounded like is that there was just this big session on groupthink about drag queens. And I just, I don't understand, A, I, maybe you guys can understand this. Why do, why do people pay $50,000 a year for their kids to be subjected to this? Like, is it, um, I, I guess maybe you answered it, it aligns with their values. They think this is healthy. Or what? Um, well, I don't think. I, I mean, I'll, I, I guess I'll add from from the parent perspective of having, you know, I guess paid those sums of money for private school. Um, no, I, I which look, means I, it I, was I, north of fifty. <laughs> well, it's now up to. I think. I think the going rate now in New York City is sixty. It hit the okay. sixty. Um, I think when my daughter first started kindergarten, which was now I guess seven or eight years ago, we hadn't quite hit fifty yet. It was in the high forties. And, and inflation is significant, you know, educational inflation, both in K through 12 and in universities, far exceeds, at least until this year, the CPI. Um, we can get it. That's get into the economics of that later. But I don't, you know, to two things. One is that the so Grace is downtown Manhattan. Um, my daughter's former school, Brearley, is uptown, Upper East Side. There always historically was some distinction that downtown schools were thought of as more progressive. The uptown schools more traditional or more conservative or less progressive uh, and nothing is conservative in New York City in, in the political sense um, that no longer really holds true I mean all these private schools are as almost as progressive as, as you can get I mean there's a few distinctions the boys schools are a little bit less so than the girls schools um, but I don't think any I don't want to say any parent I think most parents aren't paying $50,000 for their kids to go have assemblies in chapel with drag queens. They're paying for what they think of as a good education. They're paying for the status and they're paying for that ticket into elite universities. I mean, that is why most parents in New York city and in similar cities across the country are paying those kinds of, of sums for private school. And has uh, there I, been I, a, Oh, sorry to interrupt. Is there, has there been a no? I know what off? you're going to ask. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Like, has no. there been a drop in demand? Because I guess that's no. You know, there has not been. Yeah, there has there. not been. I mean, there, there's there's a very small handful of people, you know, that like myself that that have pulled their kids out of these schools, either to to homeschool to find something else uh, that that hasn't gone woke in these ways uh, to move, um, but very few. And there's a line out the door. There's so much money in a yeah. place like Manhattan. There's a line out the door and the schools know that they can fill these seats without problem. So Paul, how about, how are the the students that you spoke with or that you had kept in touch with kind of post this uh, article coming out and, and just having gone through this, are they, you know, was, do you think this will change? Like, would they ever refuse to go to the next chapel that would present material if they were uncomfortable? Like, what do you think the, um, well, I don't think so. I, I don't think so because, you know, if you are a student at one of these schools, you, you really have very little power to mm -hmm. resist any of this. I mean, especially now where the enrollment contracts have become even more restrictive on, on, on what, what parents, how much parents can even object to this, let alone a student object to this without risking expulsion or suspension. Mm -hmm. So there's that, there's that, which is really, you know, uh, so, you know, my, my advice to students in that situation is, you know, become a critical thinker, an actual critical thinker about what you see around you and really, you know, observe as if you're an anthropologist 
and, and start asking questions, just reflecting differently and ask yourself, um, as, as my friend Daniel Ifrez says, you know, does this seem right to you? And trust yourself, trust your own instincts and, and reflections more than what they're telling around you. Because I think having a healthy skepticism about what adults are really, what the adults in that, in that kind of strange Petri dish are actually interested in um, is really, really your best, your best friend and, you, and, and the thing that's going to serve you best in your life. Um, so, and I think, I think many students have that many, many more students than, than it may seem, um, to, to people on the outside, uh, or even these teachers themselves, which is encouraging. Uh, and you know, it's funny because, um, one of the things I got in trouble for about the article from, from the other side is that I, I actually honored the pronouns of this agender non-binary teacher who, who took the opportunity at this event to resign because she, uh, sorry, they felt, they felt that, um, uh, you know, that the administration had not supported them in holding accountable members of the school community, uh, colleagues, uh, in particular that did not use their pronouns correctly. Uh, so just, so, I just want to draw for yeah. one second, just to be very clear, yeah. we've got, one of the most progressive schools in New York, one of the maybe one of the most progressive private schools in the country, mm -hmm. is not progressive mm -hmm. enough. That's it's correct. never this, enough. It's never right. enough. Okay, it's that, never okay. enough. Right, right, right. It isn't. And do you do you sense? I was as I was reading about this person that there is this this uh, notion of therapy that somehow it's the school's job, it's the student's job to somehow affirm these individuals, to ensure that they as individuals are, you know, accepted and honored. And to me, I mean, you're, you're employed at one of these schools to educate kids. I, when, did the, when did the script flip where somehow now it's the school's job to make sure everybody is always feeling good and you know, I'm noticing I'm noticing this strain. I'm just wondering if you've ever, you know, picked up on that kind of of mindset. Um, and maybe that maybe that was that way amongst some of the teachers that you worked with there. Some of it, I think, Beth, is that the, there's this there's this been this erosion of the boundary between student and teacher, where you know I think if you were to ask them, well, you know, why do you expect the administration to or the, your students to to honor this thing when you're actually your job is to teach, and the, and and the response would be, I imagine, well, that's the culture. We're setting the tone of the culture. So the same thing that I asked for myself, you know, this is setting the expectations for our students that they should they should have the same expectations for the people around them. So they're they're thinking that there's this sort of consistent. They want there to be a consistency in the change of the culture. Um, but yes, this this overweening sense of entitlement around, you know, well, I'm. I'm different and I'm going to expect this, this traditional entity, this institution, which has been here for over a hundred years to cater to my needs because I am, you know, and that's, that's the, I think it's a kind of a, a, a feedback loop around narcissism where if one person starts to think narcissistically and what's good for me, then everybody else is going to do it too. And everyone else is going to, and the, the, the reinforcement is the mutual admiration society where everyone says, oh, you're so brave and powerful. 
and, and courageous for asking everyone to, for demanding that everyone treats you the way you want to be treated. Right. Well, uh, you know, yeah. with this f- hyper focus on identity, 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 it's always, it's, I suppose it's not that um, surprising that, that this, like a narcissistic sense would permeate, I guess, how people think about their existence, about the people around them, and just that everybody's got to rearrange themselves so I am happy um, versus how the real world works, which is not so much that way. Well, it's consistent with the paradigm, the zeitgeist, which is social constructionism. So if if my sense of self is, is put together by seeing my actions reflected in other people, it's this entirely outer directed uh, mode of mode of being this way of conceiving of your human human person so i i construct my identity based on how other people see me so if you don't see me the way that i want that that i think i need to be seen well then i don't exist that is i need to have my existence constantly reinforced by this by this uh by the reflections of what you say to me and you know i'm literally fighting for my life if you don't call me by the right pronoun so it, it really is this hyper uh, kind of like a hall of mirrors way of looking at, at reality. So, you know, I am, if I'm a racialized, if I'm minoritized, um, then I am, as you see me, I am how others, others perceive me and my self-esteem is dependent on that. Therefore I require you to, you know, not, not be anti-black or, or, you know, have anything that criticizes me because that, that is a matter of life and death for me. Um, which the is vortex the vortex of victimhood, isn't right? It? So it's it's the absolute opposite of what I think, you know. People are, you know, for research seems to suggest, which is resiliency uh, and, and most of right. okay. yes, the history of psychology as well. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, Cognitive would, behavioral therapy. Uh, there's so many strands uh, that are saying or oriented in the opposite direction that you have to ask. You know, you have to wonder like, is this is on purpose? This is this is created to to create dependent adults who are collectivist minded, um, who see themselves tribally that can be manipulated more easily. So it really bingo, it's the most unhealthy. And that's what I wanted when I, when I back into 2021 last year, when I was at the, the segregated zoom meeting, I, I really felt the, the one contribution I made that, that I think stuck and got me in the most trouble was that I said, to what extent must I define myself by how other people see me? And if there's one thing I, I would want a student to come out of any institution or, or any childhood really is you are not how others see you. In the same way, like if everyone thinks that you're going to jump off a bridge, do you jump off a bridge? It's sort of a, a, an inversion of the saying my mother used to say, you know, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you? Uh, if everyone else thought you should, do you have to? You know, and to what extent do we have an individual agency which is, which is not dependent on how we're treated? by people around us. Like you only need like one or two examples. You don't need everyone to affirm you. Um, But it does help to have like a strong parent or, you know, a a close relative. Um, But pay attention to that voice. I would say that's going to, that's going to teach you and help you reflect on what you think about things and you don't have to pay attention to anyone else. I wish you were still in a classroom somewhere. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Last, last question on that note, When, when you exposed, you know, a little over a year ago, a year ago, Sprague, what was going on, you know, at Grace Church and, you know, went viral for that. It was around the issues of race. 
what we are seeing now broadly is a lot more attention um, to the issues of gender and sexuality when we talk about identity as evidenced by this piece in the post-millennial on, on the drag queen and on pronouns. Did you see, and I know you've talked about and written about how you, know, you saw these issues coming through as a teacher for years, you know, and even before sort of the summer of 2020 and George Floyd BLM around, around race. Did you see this coming on gender and sexuality as well through the years? Yeah, I did. Um, and it, it, it happened, I think it's, there was a slight delay, but, but I started to notice things around gender. And, and certainly we had students that, um, you know, one or two that started to identify as either the opposite gender or were transitioning in some way. Um, and that there tended to be more r- right up to the point where I left. Um, and there was a heightened sensitivity around that. We had a, we had a, a, a very self-congratulatory uh, meeting where we, we announced the all gender bathrooms in the school and which were, you know, essentially just a single use bathroom, but they hung a sign and the sign right. said all genders. Um, and there was a lot of hoopla around it. And everyone said, well, isn't it great that we're doing this? But, but in, t- in terms of the intellectual tradition, yes, you started to see that in some of the biology classes, actually. You started to see, started to see lessons that talked about, um, usually it was by analogy, said so there would be another species where gender was indeterminate or there were multiple sexes mm-hmm. and that somehow that could translate to the human species. Um, so it was always it was it was always really spurious and kind of flimsy, um, but uh, certainly gender you know uh, sex assigned at birth that was a phrase that I heard a lot. Uh, transphobia started to creep in as 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 a label for certain certain ideas. Um, so yeah, I did. I, it started to happen. Uh, let, last and I lied uh, that that was my last question because I want to follow up on one thing uh, as a math teacher. Um, my daughter, who went to an all-girls school, they specifically for math were so focused on girls and math. Girls not being afraid of math, uh, you know, girls not being intimidated by math. They they told parents all the time, "We don't want you to say I wasn't good at math. I hated math." Especially the moms, they're very explicit about that. Uh, and because of that, they actually went very, very slowly. And we found this out when we took our daughter out. They were years behind even the public schools, uh, suburban public schools on where they were in math curriculum. Mm-hmm. You, were at a, you were a math teacher at a co-ed school. I'm curious if you, saw, if, you, if you had to take into account similar things, if the administration had similar thoughts about uh, girls versus boys in math, and, and did that affect what you were teaching, how fast you were teaching, what you were teaching, at all? Were you sensitive to that issue of girls, boys, and math? Yeah, I was, and it was a priority. And so I was often screwed, you know, as as the head of the math department or the, what they call the curriculum coordinator for the math department, because we don't have department heads, but I, I was making decisions based on grades uh, uh, for all the students in the school about which, whether they should get into honors classes or not. And and there were there was a, there was some scrutiny around the gender distribution of my honors classes. Some of it was optical. So like if they, if they come around, the photographer comes around and looks at my class, you know, there should be it really, you know, it's not a good look if there's not enough girls. But right. what I found was well, actually, equity. 
yeah, I mean, what I found though that actually I did okay with that because what what I've noticed, and again, this is this is just my observation for a very small sample size, but it seems to align with what I've heard about the normal distribution of girls and boys in math, which is that there are more boys, you know, at the extremes that the normal distribution for boys is flatter and for girls, it kind of peaks in the middle. So, you know, and as the standards somewhat declined over the years, what happens is that you have a large chunk of girls in the honors classes because they are all performing at a, you know, many of them are performing at a very good level, competent level. And so they are going to be in those honors classes, whereas you'll have, you know, so a lot of the boys will be further down on the distribution and they won't get into the honors classes. And I started to see that some of them, a certain amount of discouragement among boys that were quiet. Um, all of the messaging in the school is, you know, pro girl, girl up clubs and, you know, more girls in STEM and posters in the hallway and groups and conferences. And, you know, there were boys that just, they were getting lost. Um, and you know, I, I blame myself on that too, because I wasn't, I wasn't focused on those boys. And it's sort of the inversion of what they said it used to be, which is, you know, boys would speak up more and the girls would get crowded out. What I found was that the girls would sit up front, they'd have their seven different color pens. They were taking meticulous notes. Yeah, you know, this is this is a generalization, but you get but I'm trying to yeah. create uh, this happened over several years. So and so they were really on top of their homework. And then you'd have, you know, some brilliant girls, but you'd also have like a brilliant boys who would, you know, be less organized. But then you'd have some disorganized boy that were boys that were really lost. So that was kind of my sense of uh, very subjective, but but you know my sense, and it seemed to align with what I had read about distributions in uh, of, of boys and girls in math. Well, we could probably have you back a third time to talk even more about sure, math. To. I mean, there's no, there, there really are so many dimensions to this, not to mention that most American kids are not performing at grade level in math. I mean, we're it's at some disaster. pretty, pretty or dismal numbers or anything, yeah. right? So, but well, we certainly thank you for being here. And um, especially thank you for, for speaking, to, you know, speaking out for kids. Um, and for, while it is a tragedy, I think that you are not in a classroom. Um, I am grateful that you are out there exposing some of this so that people really do understand what's unfolding um, before their very eyes under their noses. And so we thank you for that. Uh, thank you. So yeah, thanks for coming, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk to Paul. Oh, it is. And I, I meant what I said at the outset that he is a little bit my hero. I just think it took so much courage to speak out uh, when he did. And then just, you know, being a voice and and deciding to write about this and really be out there because he basically left teaching. And, and I think he had really loved it. And um, I don't know that that's an option for him. Uh, but I know he's had I know he could go back. I mean, I know he's mm -hmm. spoken about having had, you know, people reach out to him with job offers, which which he was maybe surprised and flattered and, and happy about, I, I'm not sure that he wants to do that right now. He's, he's yeah. become a journalist and exposing these things, but I, you know, I, I, I we need more teachers to do that. I was going to say, and we need to call, are, I'm calling all the other Pauls yeah. out there. Um, and, but there and, are jobs out there, maybe not in New York city. 
you know, right. just well, like there are other schools out there, but for, for, for us, yeah, not, well, let that, let that be encouragement. If there are teachers listening and, and are witnessing things that they do not like and do not think are healthy for kids, you know, that there, it is, it is not necessarily the end of your career, I guess. And then, um, and you're also have the added benefit of doing the right thing. Also, um, you know, we should call a call out to the parents out there, you know, who do learn of this stuff and who, you know, I, I just, I'm glad that we talked a little bit of explaining why people stick around for it, because I mean, they really, that pipeline of people that are still funneling into the school does enable this to continue on. And so I hope we get to a point where, you know, people understand that that money, you know, how hard would it be if you've got, if you're spending upwards of 50 grand a year, could you not get together with a couple other parents? You could hire a teacher. You it's could hard. create a pod. I know it it's is. And then you also, really and, and you lose, I guess, I get the social status and the connection it, and the networks. You know, I've looked but at this doing is your it. children's I know, mind. I, I, I agree with you, but I, in fairness, because we looked at doing it and I've spoken to families that are, have contemplated doing it. Some have done it, some haven't. It's not easy. It takes a lot of effort. It's harder and harder as your kids get older. So it's, a lot easier to do it when your kids are little in lower school. You need one teacher to do a lot of it. You get to middle and high school, everyone's in different levels of things. Everyone's taking different foreign languages or, or has different interests. And, and it really does get much harder. Mm -hmm. uh, we need alternatives. Clearly, we need institutions. We need people to do homeschooling. We need people to leave these schools. Mm -hmm. But and that's a lot of the reasons why people don't leave these schools is that they feel like there is not an alternative. And we you know, we dealt with that. There are, right. there are very, very few alternatives. Well, we will continue to explore those alternatives on this podcast. So with that, uh, thank you for listening to Take Back Our Schools. If you enjoyed the show, please do share it and give us a positive rating on wherever you access your podcasts. And we also hope that you will join us again. So on behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.